Right now, open your Bible to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is the text that the Lord has chosen for us this Easter Sunday 2020, this remarkable and unusual uh, Easter. Psalm 88. The topic, the psalmist portrays his lifelong suffering as a palpable darkness. The title of our message, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we, um, as Christians, Lord, we want to more than cope with what's happening in the world today. We want to live above those circumstances and uh, be a source of help and strength uh, to uh, those around us in our families and in our neighborhoods and our, uh, you know, fellow employees, anyone, Lord, that really uh, is looking for strengthening, whether Christian or non-Christian. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at this dark psalm this morning, uh, which would maybe even seem in one sense the opposite of what we need, that we would see it's exactly what we need uh, for, for the dark times in which we are facing. And, and Lord, uh, in our own lives, uh, the, the uh, COVID-19 situation doesn't uh, change the fact that many in our fellowship and outside of it and many of their friends are suffering in different ways, Lord, as, as uh, uh, from diseases and accidents and conditions and all of that. And so... Uh, Lord, encourage us, strengthen us, bless us. That's uh, what we want. That's what you want for us, Lord, so that we can uh, bear the, the light of your message to a dark world. We thank you. We praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I've had mosquito bites that were more passionate than this undead, unrequited, and altogether unfun pseudo-romantic riff on Romeo and Juliet. The critic who penned that was Mark Salov of the Austin Chronicle and the movie... Twilight. Sorry, you Twilight fans. Some movies are so bad, the reviews are the best part. I'd rather wake up next to a severed horse head than ever watch Gotti again. The finished product belongs in a cement bucket at the bottom of the river. Johnny Olkosensky of the New York Post. Catwoman is considered by critics to be one of the worst movies ever made. Keith Phipps of the AV Club wrote... The film could have turned out worse, but only via the addition of an accident in which the actors caught on fire. Bible commentators reviewing Psalm 88 are not sarcastically critical, of course, but their words are quite stunning. Derek Kidner says, this is the saddest prayer in the Psalter. H.C. Leupold says, it is the gloomiest psalm found in the scriptures. The psalmist is as deeply in trouble when he has concluded his prayer as he was when he began it. J.J. Stewart Perrone says, this is the darkest, saddest psalm in all the Psalter. It is one wail of sorrow from beginning to end. John Phillips, there is scarcely a glimmer of hope anywhere. It is full of dejection, despair, death. The very last word of the psalm is darkness. Marvin Tate, Psalm 88 reminds us that life does not always have happy endings. That, to me, makes this the perfect psalm, the appropriate song to sing for our own times of darkness and despair. Some people, important people, are saying that our entire country is in such a dark time. U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams told Fox News host Chris Wallace, and I quote, this is going to be the hardest and the saddest week of most Americans' lives, quite frankly. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment, only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country, and I want America to understand that. Now, whether you totally agree with that or not, 
I think you can tell that we're in a dark time. You're going to need Psalm 88, if not today, for what has befallen us, for sure on some tomorrow when darkness assaults your own life. The psalmist mentions darkness twice, but if you're listening closely, there is light in his darkness, a light that overcomes. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, there is light for you to look past darkness. And number two, there is light for you to live in darkness. Let's take a look past the darkness in verse one. I know some of you are binge watching disaster movies. Uh, Just Americans are so fun. There's a line in World War Z uttered by the top physician working on the vaccine for the zombies. He says, Mother Nature is a serial killer. No one is better or more creative. I know some of you are binge reading the Psalms. There's a line in Psalm 88 that must be meditated upon. It's here in verse one. It's right at the beginning. It's highlighted as if it were uh, because things are so bad, the psalmist could not wait to get to it. It wasn't a matter of, of getting through the dark parts to the light. He said, this is the light. And so verse one, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the chief musician set to Mahalath Leonoth, a contemplation of Heman the Ezraite. A lot of introduction before we get into it. Who is this psalmist that was in so much sorrow? Heman the Ezraite, a descendant of Korah, is the most famous Bible character you've never heard of. Here is a synopsis of his life from one resource I consulted. Haman was the grandson of Samuel, final judge of Israel who anointed King Saul and King David. His musical family of 14 sons and three daughters was prominent during the reign of King David, kind of like the the Jackson family, you know, just everybody was just totally talented and they were all uh, worshiping the Lord. They were present, it says, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem. Haman worked closely with King David. He's listed as one of three main musicians appointed by King David for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. And so uh, interesting from First Chronicles there, uh, that quote, there's a, there's a whole study in the idea that the Psalms were also not just prophetic in the sense of, of showing the future, like a Messianic Psalm, but, but that they uh, were infused with a kind of prophecy as God would speak through them to his people. That's maybe why some of the worship choruses are so meaningful to different individuals, because they, they have this sense of God's uh, prophetic word. And so he was a songwriter, he was a seer, and he was also a sage. Solomon, the wisest man of all, was compared to Heman. First King says he was wiser, that is Solomon, than anyone else, including Heman. Uh, And so obviously Heman was a a wise man. His only known song is Psalm 88, but it's no one-hit wonder. It remains top of the charts, you might say, for sad songs to sing when you're suffering. So he goes on and the psalm begins, O Lord, God of my salvation. Let's just stop there. This has been called the only truly positive statement in the psalm. Since we know the Lord as full of grace and mercy, there must be sufficient hope in this statement for the darkest night and the deepest valley. God of my salvation, only four words in English, but worthy of many sermons. I think possibly we could... um, read over it or skip over it or go past it too quickly because it is so compact. 
We expect important statements to take a long time to develop, but the psalmist, Heman, he says, look, I'm going to tell you right at the beginning in four words everything you need to know before you encounter my suffering and your own suffering, and it is God is my salvation, or you're the God of my salvation, rather. And so we would start by saying something obvious. There is a God who saves. Do you realize that you need saving? Not from a global pandemic, but from something far worse, a universal, what we might call pre-existing spiritual condition. And that condition is sin. Everyone conceived inherits a sin nature from our original parents. We see it manifest as we commit individual acts of sin throughout our lives. Atheist, Christian, it doesn't matter. You have to notice that there's something wrong with people. People, even who are basically, we might say, good, there's something wrong with them. They still get angry and they do weird things. And they, uh, the Bible said they would say they sin. But even if we want to use just secular language, we could. That's why there are courts and uh, that's where there are prisons and that's where are the police officers and things like that. There's something wrong with people. And they can't seem to figure out what it is or get a handle on it. God gave Adam and Eve a choice. And you know why he did. He had to give them a real choice because love cannot be forced and remain love. You cannot force someone to love you and call it love. And so God, who is love, creates a being who he wants free love back from and has to give them a choice. He has to, you might say, take a risk on Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve chose badly, sinning and thereby plunging God's perfect creation into ruin. People ask, is COVID-19 a judgment from God? The answer is no. It is par for the course here on our fallen earth. It's the most recent evidence that mankind needs saving. I don't say that in any way to minimize its impact. But for our purposes today, COVID-19 is proof that we brought sin into God's perfect creation and that we need saving from sin. Enter into this literally Jesus Christ. He was God in human flesh, God incarnate. He came to offer himself as a substitute for the human race. He died on the cross to draw all mankind to himself. He is the savior of the world, not the person responsible for evil in the world. The Lord came into the world to save the world, not to destroy it. And here's the Easter message. He rose from the dead, proving his sacrifice was sufficient to save any and all who believe him. I believe Jesus because he rose from the dead. No one else can say that. There are no other great religious leader or sage or individual that people follow. No philosopher, no psychologist has risen from the dead in a forever glorified body, validating everything that they said but Jesus has. I don't think we can ever stress too much that God saves. He saves individuals and he is saving lost creation. While admittedly the rest of the Psalm will be filled with tears, God's salvation is more than just a high point. It is the point. It's why the apostle Paul could declare and remind us, quote, our light affliction is but for a moment, but it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. No matter the intensity or the duration of your suffering, it is all a light affliction that lasts for a moment 
compared to eternity. If you're a young earth creationist, you follow the chronologies back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We've been around maybe, I think, 7,000 years as a species. Uh, long time to you and I, uh, you know, since we don't live very long, uh, you know, it seems like a long time, uh, but it's a drop in the bucket, really. It's nothing compared to eternity. You couldn't even compare it to eternity. Uh, and so we think, well, God, you, you know, you're sure taking a long time to do this. But if you read the Bible as one narrative, 66 books, but all telling the same story in different ways from start to finish, you see the fall, you see the promise of the Savior, you see the coming of the Savior, you see the victory of the Savior on the cross, and then the second coming of the Savior to deal with everything. And, and you know, it, it actually is pretty compact when you look at it that way. Quite honestly, it just took God that long to accomplish his purposes in the human race. And since one day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a day is like a, uh, a thousand years like a day, uh, it hasn't been that long. We only think it's been a long time. All of our suffering, therefore, in that timeline is a light affliction. We must always be looking at life from our promised future. That's what gives suffering its context. Non-believers have no context for suffering. Their context is that if there's a God, he should just deal with all suffering by making everybody healthy and, and happy. But that doesn't deal with the problem of sin. We have a context for sufferings that fosters endurance, patient endurance that can be infused with grace. C.S. Lewis put it this way, there are far, far better things ahead than anything we leave behind. We are a people that look ahead and live ahead. Haman identified the Lord as the God of my salvation. While Haman did not have the fuller revelation of God we enjoy today, he believed in a personal living God who had a relationship with him. He said, this is my God. He is my Lord. Not just the Lord. It's not enough to believe that there is a God and that he's Jesus. The demons believe that, the scripture says, and they tremble. He needs to be your Lord personally. If you're not a believer, if you've not been saved, you're going to die in your pre-existing condition, as Gino prayed this morning. You're going to be committed to eternal conscious torment in the absolute darkness of the lake of fire. Salvation is a light in many ways, including two we've discovered in these few words. First, it illuminates a path that will always end with our glorious entrance into heaven. I'm saying that this light, uh, this revelation, God is my salvation, is what lit the path for Haman as he suffered the next verses. He's all over the map on, on grief and sorrow and, and different things, but he always had the light of this verse. And second, it renders our troubles a light affliction that is but for a moment. Different look at light, not a, not a light in the sense of a, a burning lamp, but in the sense of a, a, a small load. The man who said that, Paul the Apostle, who suffered for Jesus as much certainly as any other person ever has. He said, all of this is a light affliction compared to eternity. And so Haman established a base, a foundation for crying out day and night before you. You can't really begin to cry and get this low until you're this high, I guess you might say, standing on this foundation. And then the remainder of his song describes his crying, his very human experience in the midst of darkness with only the light of God.
There is light for you to live in the darkness. Uh, Nicolatopia, Nicolatopia, proper name for night blindness. It's a condition that makes it impossible or at least difficult to see in relatively low light. It's described as insufficient adaptation to darkness. Darkness is an apt metaphor in the Bible for suffering and actually for the true condition of our planet. The Apostle John said of Jesus coming to earth that he was a singular light shining in the darkness. And so John understood the world, the world system, as being in a spiritual darkness, like Biden caves that you can visit, or one of those places you go in and it's totally dark. There's no light whatsoever. Freaky, I hate that. I always think I'm going to get stuck in there. What am I doing in here? It's probably skeletons behind me. Luckily, there's always some kid with sneakers that light up. Then I get mad because I couldn't experience the total dark. So you can't, you know, I can't have it both ways, I guess. But Jesus was a light coming, the light coming into that darkness. We cannot afford to have insufficient adaptation to darkness. I think a lot of us as Christians, especially as we first encounter a trial or a trouble or a suffering, we find that we have an insufficient adaptation to the dark. And we're terrified and scared and screaming and crying out and running from it. And, and we'll do anything to get out of it. And Haman is going to teach us, if nothing else, you need to have an adaptation to the dark, knowing that you have the light. Verse one is like an eye salve that counters spiritual night blindness. And these remaining verses tell us just how bad things can get. He says, I've cried out day and night before you. Because God is my salvation, I, I see him through the dark. He said, he's going to say, man, it's dark in here. This is terrible time, Lord. But he's always looking at the Lord, looking to the Lord. He can always see the Lord. He knows that the Lord is his companion and comforter at all times. Let my cry come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. One commentator I read described the character of Haman's upcoming prayer this way. He said, it seems that the psalmist here ransacks the vocabulary of gloom and bitterness to describe his hopeless plight. He is definitely a terminal case. He feels as if he were on the critical list in the isolation ward of a hospital for incurables. The only thing left is the morgue, and it is only a matter of time before the sheet will be drawn over his face and he will be carted off. If you think somehow that's wrong or sinful to be this low, Remember, Haman was no spiritual lightweight. I read you his resume. His song is a sad song we will all need to sing. We have to learn to reconcile, like the Apostle Paul saying things like, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And the fact that so many Bible characters were in pits of despair and, and what we might even call depression. Uh, you know, you, you can't, and I guess what I'm saying is you, and then the Bible also tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So you can't just go up to a person that's suffering and say, hey, you should rejoice instead. There's no reason for you to be feeling this way because there's so many of the Bible characters who God loved and were, I mean, heavy duty guys, sages, seers, songwriters who, who were in the depths of despair. I told you a few weeks ago about the great uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon suffered from fits of depression his entire life. I'm not giving the stamp of approval to it. I'm just saying we have to be realistic. But Haman was. He said, hey, I know he is the God of my salvation. Here's what I'm going through. It's a good thing I can see him. 
J.N. Darby said of Psalm 88, one time this was the only scripture that was any help to me because I saw that someone had been as low as that before me. Uh, it's kind of a weird way of, of being encouraged, but he, this guy, Darby says, hey, I was encouraged to know a Christian can get that low and make it through. Now, we don't know what Heman was suffering from or with. I think it's good that we don't know because it allows each of us to relate to him in our own suffering, whether great or small. Sometimes if a person is going through something, uh, they think, well, you can't relate to me because you've never gone through it. Uh, do, you, do you ever talk to your television? Just get mad at the dialogue and stuff. And, and so there's always those scenes where something tragic happens and the person says, I know what you're going through. And I just yell out, no, you don't. No, you don't. You have no knowledge. And sometimes the other characters, you don't know. Did you blah, 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 and stuff like that. And so I say, yeah, right on. Nail that guy. So I've taken that out of my vocabulary. Those words, I never string those words together anymore. I know what you're going through. Even if we went through the same thing, similar things, I still don't know what you're going through because you have a whole different base behind you of other fellowship and friends and family and relationships. I, there's no way I can, I can have, but I can still suffer with you because I suffer. And, and so just be careful. Be careful giving people false hope or ask, you know, I mean, let them re, tell them to read Psalm 88. And they'll come to that same conclusion that Darby did, that it's somebody who had been as low as that before me. We don't know what Haman was suffering from, but he said, my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. Haman's suffering, suffering excuse me, was terminal. He faced the prospect of his imminent death. I think as Christians, we generally think we live a moment, not a moment at a time. It's not that we don't plan for the future, but we feel like, you know, we know we could be raptured or die at any moment. And, you know, it doesn't surprise us that that might happen. Until you get a diagnosis of something and then you think, oh, I really, really, now I am going to die any minute. And some of you, you know, uh, know people or in your own life, they say, hey, you wait for the test to come back and you're praying that it's negative and they say, hey, you tested positive. You're, in fact, you're stage four. We need to do something right now. Well, now you've gone from the philosophical to the practical. You, you are going to die, barring some kind of medical or uh, ministerial miracle. And, and so, you know, uh, you need to have a perspective that, that life is a vapor. appears for a moment, then it vanishes away. I'm counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength. I'm adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more and who are cut off from your head. These Old Testament statements about the pit and the grave need to be understood in the context of what had been revealed to uh, these saints. There's no doubting they had a limited knowledge of what happens after death. I think Haman was more lamenting that if he died, what use would that be? He would no longer be remembered by God in this sense. Someone else would take his place as God's servant. Someone else would write songs and dispense sage counsel and see into the future. Haman would be cut off from God's hand. God's hand would no longer be upon him. He would no longer be God's hand as a tool of ministry. And so this is, you know, you know a common feeling that I've seen people have. It's like, hey, I have, I have more work to do. I have more to accomplish. I'm not done yet. And God says, well, yeah, actually you are. And the way that we need to approach that is to realize that as much as it's important that I work for God, 
that I serve the Lord with the gifts and the talents and the abilities he's given me and I minister as his hand. Never forget God's greatest work is you, not through you, but in you. The work you do for him, it's important and it will be rewarded. But conforming you into the image of Jesus, that's what God is all about. He said he began a good work in you at salvation when you were saved and that he will perform it and continue it until the day you see Christ Jesus. He says that he is, you are his workmanship and that can mean any object of art or you know, anything from a poem to a statue that's being made by a craftsman. And we, we tend to forget that God's work in us is the most profound work because we're going to exist for eternity. And God says, in this fallen world, in this dark world where I am its only light, I can mold and shape you using any of the elements that come upon your life, whether they be good or whether they be in the category of bad. And so it's not so much that maybe even God chose, you know, you to go through this disaster or this thing, because we know that there is a God in this world, Satan, and we know the world has fallen. And some of the things that befall us as Christians befall everybody. Christians aren't the only ones that get diagnoses of cancer and disease and death. But God says, in the midst of that, I can use that to mold and shape you into the image of Jesus. Gene, you would have never chosen this. You know, I look back on my life as I get older. I'm a senior citizen now. It's killing me. But the discounts are great. Anyway, as I get older, I look back on my life and there's so much that I wouldn't have chosen on my own, but God chose for me or directed and I can see what he was doing now. And so, you know, leave it to him. He's, he's obviously got a long way to go with me, but uh, he's working in us more so than he's working through us. And so rest in his work. He uses odd tools, I guess. Um, you ever see, uh, there's those shows. I, I never use any tools. I've been banned from using hand tools or power tools. I'm just dangerous. But uh, there's those shows where they, they go back and they only use the tools from the 1800s, you know, the, the craftsman tools, and they make all this stuff. God chooses tools that we would never choose, uh, tools that involve suffering and adversity and affliction in order to mold and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Even today with our fuller revelation of the grace of God, it's common for a believer to think that his or her suffering is none other than discipline upon them. And so in verse six, you have laid me in the lowest pit in darkness in the depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves. And so Haman, like us, felt like he was under God's wrath. Haman was applying a principle to a situation, whereas in the Old Testament, people did have a lot more physical experience because God said, hey, if you obey me, this will happen. If you disobey me, this other thing will happen. And it can be true in our case that we are being disciplined by God for sin. There are cases in the New Testament where God caused believers to be sick or to die as a discipline, but they were in obvious notable sin. I would say to you, if you're getting drunk before communion or if you're lying about, to the Holy Spirit about how much money you gave to the poor, you're in obvious sin. And people who did that in the New Testament were killed. God killed them and took them home. That was the wrath of God. But while it's a good idea to search your heart and your suffering, chances are it isn't the wrath of God lying upon you. It's simply because we live in a fallen world whose God is the devil. 
and that sickness and death are going to exist until the return of the king. Salah is an unknown musical notation. Haman has just struck a note that needs our most serious contemplation. Verse 8, you have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up. I can't get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you, Selah? Haman sees himself as a prisoner, shut up, locked away in his cell, receiving no visits from his former acquaintances. In fact, they, they avoid him. When we suffer, others do care. They care a lot, but their lives generally go on. The contrast is stunning. They're relatively free while you seem locked in a cell of suffering. One thing COVID-19 can teach you, you have some small experience of what it's like to be a shut-in, a person whose whole experience of living is sheltering at home. Some of you are going crazy, right? I talk to you and it's like, man, I, I just, I can't stay inside. I have to go places. There was a funny meme on the internet. There's a lady in the freezer section of a grocery store and it says, risking her life for the third time to find packaged waffles, you know, and stuff. And you think, oh yeah, I gotta, I'm gonna go to the store to get waffles and maple syrup, even though theoretically I could contract this disease and die. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we just don't like to be shut in. We don't like to be deprived. Uh, and so if you're feeling that, hang on to those feelings so that you can have a greater compassion for those who do. doesn't mean you have to visit everybody who's a shut in. Some people don't like that. You realize that? There, there are some private people. The six foot distance thing, I like that. I'm a six footer. You know, I don't like to hug. I love you, but I don't want to hug you. And now you know why. You're carriers. But no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, some people are more huggables than others. Some people are f uh, close talkers, right? Get right in your face. Masks are no, they're mask to mask now. Others are six footers, you know, and so... I like it. Trump the other day said, maybe we should never shake hands again. I thought, oh, you're my president. That's what'll make America great again right there. But anyway, I, I diverge. Haman said, my eye wastes away. His much crying was interfering with not just his vision, but we might say his spiritual vision. He wondered what good his death could accomplish. It seemed only to detract from his otherwise important service to God. You know, we always want to give suffering and death profound earthly meaning. It's just not always possible to find what we would be satisfied with as an earthly meaning. Establishing funds or foundations in someone's memory, that's great, but that isn't the reason they died. I'll tell you the most profound meaning of death. It's Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It doesn't answer why a person dies, but it gives you perspective on their death. Their death was precious to the Lord. A grand entrance is supplied for them into heaven as angels bear us home and rejoice. Nothing on earth could begin to compare with our homecoming. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? So what Haman is saying here is that my songs are filled with your loving kindness and faithfulness and wonder and righteousness, and that's gonna cease if I'm dead. I'll write no more songs leading worshiping hearts to God. It would literally be the day the music died is what he's saying. Obviously, God goes on with other servants. He raises others up who write other songs. 
but this is what he felt like. And I don't fault him for it. He, he wanted to serve the Lord and he, did, he felt like he had a few songs left. Verse 13, but to you, I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes to you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? This is Haman's version of the why question that asks about the problem of pain and suffering. Since God can stop our suffering, why doesn't he? I think a lot of Christians don't answer this because they haven't answered it for themselves. I see it in media all the time, television, movies, you know, that whenever there's a Christian, you know, the, the non-Christian who just had a trek, why did God allow this? And the Christian never has an answer. God moves in mysterious ways. That's not an answer. And so we need to answer this for ourselves so that we can answer others. Why doesn't God stop suffering? It is the number one complaint, I believe, of non-believers. It's, it's, their, it's their, you know, the ace in the hole. Well, let me talk to you about Jesus. Yeah, well, why doesn't Jesus stop suffering? They see God as either unwilling or as unable to alleviate human suffering. It's sad they cannot see beyond suffering that God is long-suffering towards them. He's not willing they perish, but that they receive his offered salvation. God has a decisive plan to end all suffering forever. It's in writing. It's the Bible from first to last, but especially the last book of the Bible. And when it's implemented in full, it will end sin and death and suffering for eternity. Just read the last two chapters of the Bible. The Bible is one book, I think, where you should start at the last two chapters. You know, you don't, when you're reading a novel, you don't want to know what happens until the end. Otherwise, it ruins it. I think, you know, people say, well, what should I read as a new believer? And they say, oh, the Gospel of John or start this or that. Anymore, I say, you need to read Revelation 21 and 22 and figure out where this is all headed. That's what Haman is actually is doing. He's saying, hey, I, verse one covers what I'm going to talk about here, God of my salvation. So if people ask you what to read, tell them Revelation. And God's put it all down. And when it's implemented, it will end sin and death and suffering for all eternity. Believers will be in glorified bodies that are fit for eternity, will have genuine free will, but no longer be capable of sinning. People say, well, how's that possible? How can you have free will but be incapable of sinning? God has free will and is incapable of sinning. And he wants beings that are like him, not gods. We won't be gods. We'll be human beings, but we will be incapable of sinning. And it will be a time of amazing wonder and prosperity. But it also ends every opportunity for non-believers to be saved. It will, there, there'll be no more chance. In verse 15, I've been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. If there's a clue to Haman's affliction anyone in this, anywhere in this psalm, no one can find it. But whatever it was, it was lifelong. You can have a lifetime of suffering and be in the will of God. I, I don't wish that on you. I, I, you know, hopefully that's not true. But it's the world we live in. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Here he feels like he's in a shipwreck that every day kept him thinking he was drowning. And I've heard people say that drowning is a peaceful death. You drown people come back and say, man, that was peaceful. Or maybe you nearly drown. Every time I see a person who nearly drowned, they start coughing up water. It doesn't seem it was very peaceful, you know. So I don't want to drown. Drowning scares me. I've almost drowned too many times in the ocean. The ocean scares me. 
I know it's, it's, it's nice to see the ocean and hear the waves. I don't go into it anymore. I don't go on it. I sad that I have to go over it sometime. And the ocean's a scary place, right? Weird stuff in there. Anyway, that's just me. Jaws changed my mind forever. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me. In the 2014 feature film, Edge of Tomorrow, a soldier fighting aliens, played by Tom Cruise, dies every day, only to relive each day. But the day starts where he had died previously, and he makes a little bit of progress each time. Of course, he figures out what to do ultimately until he is victorious. Haman started each day suffering, but there was no progress. If anything, his situation got worse. And with this, we've arrived at the point in a psalm where we are looking for a climactic word of hope and strength. Here's what Haman chose as his climax. Verse 18, loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Haman is basically saying that he outlived all those who were once dear to him. There's a hint that he would rather have died with them, even though he was just bewailing the fact that he was going to die. It's fickle, not at all what we were expecting. It almost reads as unfinished. If you're just reading this psalm lightly, it's like a Franz Kafka novel. It seems like it's unfinished, that there needs to be more. But that's because we're reading it so quickly, we glance over, we gloss over verse 1, the first four words of verse 1. He's in the darkness, but we know that he saw through the dark to God. In the Lord of the Rings, Galadriel gifts Frodo with a vial that, as she put it, would be a light to him in dark places. It saved him when he was in Shalab's lair. It enabled him to live and to find life and to have life and to go on living in that darkness. When you're in the dark, don't succumb to night blindness. See through the dark to the God who saves. Start with, and therefore you end with, God is my salvation. He's the God of your salvation. He is your salvation, however you want to put it. Salvation is the most precious thing I can imagine because it involves the death of the second person of the Trinity and his rising again. God did that for me. He did that for you. In fact, he did that for the whole world, all of those who would believe in him. If Jesus is your savior... As we say every week, he's coming every, any moment. Ready or not, Jesus is coming. Keep looking up. Meanwhile, you can look down, as it were, upon the earth from your spiritual position of being already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. If you're in Christ spiritually, you're, in a sense, with Christ in heaven. And from there, you can live above circumstances. Christians need never be beneath their circumstances. They're always above them. If Jesus is not your savior, if you don't know him personally, what are you waiting for? When the gospel is presented, he is a light freeing your will to respond to his gracious invitation. Your life is darkness. You live in darkness, but the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, a light. Jesus came as a light into the darkness so that men could be saved. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, the Bible says you must be born again, and you can be born again by believing in him. Salvation is by grace. It's God's free gift. It's given to you by faith. All you do is believe. And though you're dead in trespasses and sins, you are enabled to believe in the sense that God frees your will to make a choice. And 
all of us here and all of us online who are believers would encourage you to make this Easter, the, the Easter that you come to know Jesus Christ, this crazy Easter where we can't even get together like we want to and celebrate the resurrection. He's still alive. He still lives. He still died and lives for you. Receive the Lord. Let's pray.